Good afternoon, everyone. This is the D-O-L-W-3 podcast. Today is November 1st, and it is the Feast of All Saints. And uh, as Catholics, we go to Mass, and we celebrate um, the saints, the holy men and women who have, you know, fought here on earth after, you know, after Jesus' death and, and you know, the persecution of the church and of Christians and how... Um, these holy men and women, um, through their books and their legacies, what they have taught us. And we believe as Catholics that we can call on them. You know, in eternal life, they have life, and we can call on them for help for different things. And it's it just is so rich in our faith. Um, you know, we're reading Letter to a Suffering Church. And it is by Bishop Robert Barron. It's it's just a small little book and just packed full of, um, uh, you know, things about the suffering in the scandals of the church, uh, you know. And we can talk about there's 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 all kinds of suffering that goes on, and there are many Catholics who have left the church, who even fear to come back. Even if they want to come back, they don't feel comfortable just walking into the church. You know, and I would say to you, um, especially on this feast of the All Saints Day, um, if you have at all any thought about coming back to the church, come in. You know, even if you only want to stand in the foyer when you come in and you don't want to walk into the whole church, you know, and you want to just just get a feel for it. You know, if you're comfortable enough and you want to sit in the back of the church, do so, you know, Um it can be overwhelming coming back and you know you think you know whatever you're thinking but I would suggest to you um, you know if nothing else just come and stand in the back of the church and um, and just listen just listen so oftentimes most churches you can still hear what's going on in the mass um, and if you can't you can open the door and listen and um, uh, so I'm going to start out with this because we are reading the letter to a suffering church. It's, it's amazing to me how the Holy Spirit works and how often I see and I come across um, suffering and how the church suffers. And I'm probably not telling you anything new, but um, Pope John Paul II tells us suffering is the property of the church. And he tells us that in uh, Let Me. See, let me see what that's called. I don't want to tell you wrong. Um, I've got it here somewhere. I've got too many papers. That's why. Uh, it is, let me go to my father's house. And he talks about how, um, how suffering is very, so, so much a part of the church, but that, that suffering, if we, uh, unite our suffering to Jesus when we are suffering and we offer it for a higher purpose like for a sinner that you know um, for someone you know in your family who who needs prayer for someone who died that you are concerned about their soul um, if you are suffering very and you you offer that suffering with Jesus for the mercy of God you can do so much for that person and you are um, being uh, especially merciful to um, which our Lord is full of mercy, you know, uh, in that beatitude 
um, blessed are the merciful, they will be shown mercy. It's in Matthew 5, 7. In this beatitude, um, Pope Francis tells us this. In this beatitude, there is a particularity. It is the only one in which the cause and the fruit of happiness coincide with mercy. Those who show you mercy will find mercy. They will be accorded mercy. You know, mercy is the very heart of God. And um, the little flower, she tells us um, in suffering, I've got a little, little thing she said here, I see that suffering alone gives birth to souls. And more than ever before, these sublime words of Jesus unveil their depths to me. Amen, amen, I say to you, unless the grain of wheat fall into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it will bring forth much fruit. You have sown in tears, but soon you will see the result of all your works. And that's signed by St. Therese, the little flower. Um, a Carmelite nun sent me this card, and uh, it meant a lot to me. Um, doing this type of work that we do, uh, and I write to her, and she gives me the time, and she writes back to me so faithfully, and always encouraging me and and our group in uh, as watchers in doing this work. You know, and it I bring up mercy because. I struggled with that because, you know, they always say, you know, to be merciful, to, you know, be peaceful and all those things. And you have to really know what Jesus is talking about. And I came across this in my search for um, what it means to be merciful. So it's, he says here, one must never try and separate the mercy of God from the truth of God. So God does not separate those ever. This also can be stated as separating the love of God from the wrath of God. So again, one must never try and separate the mercy of God from the truth of God. This also can be stated as separating the love of God from the wrath of God. So you can never do that. You cannot separate. So, okay, I'm going to go on here. God has revealed himself completely to us in his Son, the Word incarnate, the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ is God, and he did not come and appease those who did not see their need for redemption by lavishing piles of unconditional love upon them. He always offered mercy. However, his mercy was never given without the dispensing of truth. And I think that um, that just really touched me. That was in... Um, in an article I read, um, it was about faith, right? It, it's a group called the Faith Writers, and it was about mercy and truth. The man's name was Clifford Tate. Anyways, I, it just really struck me that, you know, that in my struggle of, you know, if mercy trumps um, truth and justice, how can that be, you know? So God, you know, and we can see like with King David, you know, there is punishment for wrongdoing. There is wrath for wrongdoing. And we are obligated as um, Christians to um, offer that truth, the gospel truth. Um, we cannot, like, judge them and say you're going to go to hell or anything like that. But we are required. We cannot just close our eyes. You know, and these scandals and um, seeing it in the holy orders 
and um, knowing that this is going on and knowing that it is not completely extinguished and there is still battles to fight within the church. Uh, evil is evil and it has been with the church since Jesus' time, since before Jesus' time. It's always there. It's always present because Adam and Eve, you know, the evil is there. Um, we are inclined. We are all sinners. We are inclined to do evil, and that is in our church. And um, there are times you have to step step up. You know, I want to talk a little bit about the charism of of Carmel. Um, been listening a lot to um, uh, Carmelite formation. Father Dini uh, is doing a series of, of videos on um, YouTube. If you look up. Uh, Father Dini, OCDS, and um, listen to all those uh, videos that he has out, and some even more more recently, um, kind of just getting down into the crux of what it means to be a Carmelite um, in and in formation. They are they're very helpful. Um, so what what I wanted to get back to though was, uh, um, you know, the little flower tells us about mercy. And um, she, with Jesus, um, that she wanted, you know, that he wants from us, Jesus wants from us merciful love, you know. And that also means like telling, you know, in, in, in my case, um, and, and in our case, not just, just us, but um, when God asks you, look, I want you to speak up for this, um, like what happened at uh, Holy Redeemer, hrburton.org, um, um, and what happened with that incident there. You know, I had to say, what do I want to be friends with? Do I want to be friends with um, FSA, or do I want to be a friend of Jesus? I had to just, that was like coming to the cross for me and, and deciding which way do I go, because I really did like my priest a lot. And, um, and he did do a lot of good. But when someone veers from what the teachings of the church, what the teachings of the gospel, um, and just like, uh, you know, so I'm not going to go any more of that, but I just want you to know, sometimes you have to say, um, I'm, I'm friends with God first. And you need to check yourself on that. Because, you know, being, being a friend um, what are you upholding? You know, are you upholding truth or are you upholding, um, a different Jesus, not a, um, not a real Jesus? You know, priests are, priests are not Jesus. And, um, we have to always remember that and that we have to first answer to God when we get, when we get up into heaven and we, you know, we're at the gates um, we're going to have an account to make, you know, so you make sure that you're following Jesus. So, um, so, you know, I said the little flower, she does, you know, talk a lot about them. You know, that's what she wanted to be is, is, you know, to, to his merciful love to be, um, um, totally given unto his merciful love and understanding his merciful love. So, I'm going to come to um, Oscar Romero, and I know I promised you I'm going to read to a letter to a suffering church, but these were some things that I thought, 
uh, were very important and kind of go along with this letter to a suffering church. And Oscar Romero, um, he, in this book, Voice of the Voiceless, Oscar Romero is a saint. He did die. He was uh, Archbishop of um, El Salvador, in El Salvador. And this is, this is called The Voice of the Voiceless, and it's four pastoral letters um, and other statements by uh, John Sabrino and Ignacio Martin Barrow. And I'm going to go to page 132, and um, this struck me, denunciation of error and of sin. Wow. You know, what does it mean to denounce something? Denounce. You know, I mean, that is, that is like a heavy word. So denunciation of error and of sin. Okay, so as a logical consequence of the proclamation of truth, love and the holiness of the kingdom of God, evangelization has the mission of denouncing every lie, every injustice, every sin that destroys God's plan. The purpose of this denunciation is not negative. It has a prophetic character. It seeks the conversion of those who commit the sin. And that, I thought, you know, that is so, that, that's Carmelite heart right there. Um, it has a prophetic character. It seeks the conversion of those who commit the sin. And we, as Carmelites, that is our duty. Um, it's not to, like, you know, I'm not coming on this podcast to, show off any skills or like ha I caught you no no it's 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 for the conversion the conversion of the sins the conversion of the sinner um, I mean yeah the conversion of the sinner so um, it has a prophetic character it seeks the conversion of those who commit the sin God does not want the death of the sinner but that he be converted and live and that is our Lord and that is his mercy so um, we are to do these kind of things, um, not for personal gain, not at all. That is the least, if I wanted personal gain, this would not be the choice I would take. Um, you know, it is for the love of the sinners and the love of the victims as well. Um, a voice for those victims, a voice for the unheard, you know, like it's a two part mission. Um, uh, the church itself cannot stand aside from this need or, for the denunciation and conversion. We preach it and we want it for ourselves for ourselves as church in order to demand it of society. For the faith denounces everything that is opposed to the construction of the kingdom. Faith denounces everything that is opposed to the construction of the kingdom. That's powerful words. This entails necessity and sometimes painful breaks. And um, and that's so true. I mean, I have lived that. And, um, you know, you may have to break away from those who you thought you were your friends. Um, it's rewarding. It is very rewarding because, you know, I don't know if you've heard that statement, but, you know, if you know the truth, the truth shall set you free. If you're always following truth, you know, um, it will set you free and you know and you cannot leave out the mercy part you can you have to you have to have mercy for the sinners you have to pray for the sinners um, but you are 
you are evangelizing and you do have to, you know, speak the, the, the truths of the Bible. Um, anyways, okay, because we are to correct the sinners. John Paul II has ga again reminded us of the inescapable mission of the church. So this is still on page 132 at the bottom here. The service of truth as a participation in the prophetic service of Christ is an obligation upon the church. It finds itself fulfilling it in every in very diverse historical context. It is necessary that injustice be given its correct designation. The exploitation of some human beings by others, the exploitation of people by the state, by institutions, by the structure of the economic systems or regimes that sometimes operate callously, it is necessary to give the correct name to every social injustice, to every act of discrimination or violence inflicted on human beings, whether on persons themselves or their spirit or their consciences, or their convictions. That's pretty powerful. So, in, uh, in the next heading is Unmasking the Idolatries of Our Society. Um, I'm just going to read something I put in yellow here. It is the vocation of human beings to raise themselves to the dignity of the children of God and to participate in God's divine life. So, you know, I wanted to include that because today is, you know, again, this, the Feast of the All Saints. And remember that we are all called to become um, great saints. How about that? We are all called to become great saints. Oh, I can't do that. Oh, I can't do that. Yes, you can. And how do you do that? You do it by growing in holiness. You follow Jesus. You draw more closer to him in your prayers. Um, and Father Dini says it in, in his uh, um, YouTube videos. It, he says, you are called to become what you are not. And, um, and you're to develop and respond. And I think that that is, you know, that's for Carmelites, but it's for anyone. Um, you know, you are called to grow in your in your. Um, life with Jesus, in your connection with Jesus. You know, the more you draw close to him, the um, more you want truth, the more you want mercy. You learn more those things by doing that. And, um, you know, how do you do those things? Well, you do them by reading the Bible, by understanding your church catechism and reading it. Um, um, use it as a resource. Go back to it. Look what things over. Look at your church document. Look at what... The church has written over the years um, um, these church documents that are so important. Um, and then, uh, you know, also read your saints. In, Carmel, in Carmelite, the OCDS um, Carmelites, we read the Theresian saints. Um, and, you know, that is the OCD uh, order, which is the order of the um, uh, Discalus Carmelites. And they're there is a third order, which is the secular order, which is what we are when we are not like in a convent or a monastery, something like that. We are out in the world, you know. So we take what we learn in formation and reading the saints and in our prayer life. Prayer life is like the utmost importance in Carmel. Um, and that grows your relationship with God. You take that 
Um, and wherever you're placed in society, you take that into your life. That is your charism. That is how you live Carmel, is by taking it into the life around you and, um, and, and using it. So, um, so we read the denunciation of yeah, that, so I want to get back to, we are going to read... Um, we're going to read a letter to the to a suffering church by Bishop Robert Barron, and we're going to start on page thirty-three. And uh, I know I was going to read you one thing before because I was surprised at how how this verse kept popping up to me, and I might not be able to find it. Here it is. It kept popping up to me, and then as I read this, um, you'll see that um, Bishop Barron refers to it too, and I just think the Holy Spirit thought this was a really important thing for me to bring up, so he nudged me to write this, um, Matthew 18.10. See that you do not despise one of these little ones, for I say to you that their angels in heaven always look upon the face of my heavenly Father, Wow. Huh? Okay. So now um, meditate on that while we're reading this. After this brief tour of some Old Testament narratives, I would like to conclude this biblical section with a look at Jesus in relation to children. The 18th chapter of Matthew's Gospel commences with a lovely and incisive meditation on the spiritual significance of children and of Jesus' attitude towards them exhibiting their customary tendency to miss the point. Jesus' entire company of disciples approached him with the question, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? That's Matthew 18.1. Their inquiry, of course, is born of a false or fallen consciousness, a preoccupation with honor and worldly power. In answer, Jesus called a little child over and placed him in their midst which is to say in the focal point, the center. By so situating the child, he physically interrupt, interrupted their jockeying for position and notice. In his innocence and humility, the child exemplifies what the spiritual masters call the true self, which is able to relate simply and directly to reality. This is in opposition to the false self which is so layered over with preoccupations with honor and it gets at re and it gets at reality only haltingly and through a kind of buffer though they take on the qualities of the false self soon enough little children typically exemplify the spiritual alertness precisely in their ability to lose themselves in a game or a conversation or the beautiful festicity of the simplest things it was a commonplace in the ancient world to hold up distinguished figures as models, military commanders, religious leaders, political potentates, etc. But what Jesus is doing is turning this tradition on its head, placing in the position of honor a figure of no social prominence, no influence, no connections. Within the standard societal framework of the time, children were expected to remain silent, and it was assumed that the powerful could manipulate them at will. Jesus reverses this, 
identifying the socially negligible as the greatest. Indeed, for those who have moved from the false self to the true self, the very meaning of greatness has been adjusted. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Matthew 18.4 What follows is a remark of his rich theological significance. And whoever receives one child such as this in my name receives me. In the second chapter of Philippians, we find the exquisite hymn that Paul has adapted to his purposes. It commences with an evocation of the self-emptying quality of the Son of God, who, though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God something to be grasped. Rather, he emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, coming in human likeness, and found human in appearance. He humbled himself, becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Philippians 2, 6, 8. In short, the child, humble, simple, self-effacing, functions as a sort of iconic representation of the divine child of the divine father. The route of access to Jesus is therefore to move into the spiritual space of a child, to accept him in the fullest sense. This truth becomes especially clear in Mark's version of this story, when the disciples dispute, disputed about which of them is the greatest, and Jesus said, If anyone wishes to be first, he shall be the last of all and the servant of all. Mark 9.35 Then he took a child, and in a gesture of irresistibility, poignancy, irresistible poignancy, placed his arms around him, simultaneously embracing him, protecting and offering him as an example. The clear implication is that the failure to accept, protect, and love a child, or what is worse, the act of harming of a child, would preclude real contact with Jesus. And this helps to explain the vehemence of the statement that immediately follows. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone hung around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. Matthew 18.6 Mind you, this is from the mouth of the same Jesus who just a few chapters before had urged the love of enemies. I don't think for a moment that the earlier teaching is being repudiated, but I do indeed think that the extraordinary gravity of the offense is being emphasized. There is no other sin, not hypocrisy, not adultery, not indifference to the poor, that Jesus condemns with greater passion than this. Woe to the world because of the things that cause sin. Such things must come, but woe to the one through whom they come. If your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life maimed or crippled than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into eternal fire. And if your eyes causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter into life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into fiery Gehenna. That's Matthew 18, 7, and 9, 7 through 9. It cannot possibly be accidental that Jesus mentions Gehenna. 
in the context of condemning those who attack children. For Gehenna was the place where throughout much of the Old Testament period, children were sacrificed to idols. Hold on, I need to take a drink. Thank you for your patience. This extraordinary section concludes with an evocation of the angels. See that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I say to you that their angels in heaven always look upon the face of my heavenly Father. This is far more than pious decoration. The abuse of children is a function of the objectification of children, turning them, as we saw, into mere means. In reminding his listeners that every child is assigned as a super, every child is assigned a supernatural guide who is in turn intimately linked to God. Jesus is insisting upon the incomparable dignity of those whom society, of those whom society then and now is likely disregard, disregard, is likely to disregard or undervalue. The central tragedy of the sexual abuse scandal is that those who were ordained to act in the very person of Christ became, in the most dramatic way, obstacles to Christ. And I think we're going to end here on page 38. Um, I've been bouncing back and forth if I should bring this up, but but um, I keep being bothered to do so, so I'm going to. So I'm also reading a book on the Episcopal dis Disciplinary Ministry on Errant Members of the Clergy. And... Um, can't say that I'm really reading this book, but I use it as a reference book. Um, it's by Oscar V. Cruz, JCD. And the reason I bring this up is because it's the very same thing. And this was definitely written at a different time, but um, it was written in 2010. So, um, um, so it's it's written by Oscar V. Cruz, JCD. He it was it was the bishop of um, the Philippines in the Philippines. But again, this, this, this same passage um, that we just went over here in um, Letter to a Suffering Church, it just pops out to me. And the reason um, uh, I just think I should, I should read this, because I'm reading the chapter here on, um, oh, it is scandal in the church. Okay. So, but how the um, Bishop Barron and how O.B. Cruz draw on this scripture and I think it's so important on um, you know uh, what God thinks of children what God thinks of the vulnerable um, and you know when when you've got young seminarians who are so young and fresh and becoming um, priests to have these scandals going on um, behind the walls and um, having to, um, as Bishop Barron said, you know, that's they wanted to be um, priests more than anything. And then to have these kind of things go on. Um, and, you know, they had to choose. They cho chose, you know. And then those who did not choose, they weren't ordained. They were told to leave. If you don't want to do what we say, then, you know, and follow evil is what they're telling them. Then, you know, you just leave. You won't be ordained, you know. And, uh you know, they belittled them or whatever they do and, you know, um, isolated them, blacklisted them, whatever, and get rid of those who wouldn't lie or who wouldn't, you know, be quiet. 
So, you know, in, in the impressionable minds, you know, and I think this is what really what Jesus is getting at is such an impressionable mind, um, these children. And I think Bishop Barron and here again, Ovi Cruz. Um, so let's read that. Um, okay. Here is the scripture. As far as these little ones who believe in me, it would be better for a man to have a millstone tied around his neck and be drowned in the deep sea than for him to cause one of them to turn away from me. How terrible for the world that there are things that make people turn away. If your hand or your foot makes you turn away, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life without a hand or foot than to keep both hands and feet and be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye makes you turn away, take it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with only one eye than to keep both eyes and be thrown into the fire of hell. That's Matthew 18, 6-9. I know I just read it, but I, I had to read it again because it's just so powerful and all these things we're talking about. And... Um, so I, he goes into an annotation and he breaks down the whole, um, the whole thing, uh, what, what each little by little, each um, part of this, he breaks it down in the, the gospel verse. So annotation, while the qualifying phrase little ones has immediate reference to innocent children who crowded around and played with Jesus and who enjoyed his love and concern in a very special way as innocent creatures with some kind of angelic features. The same phrase, however, certainly applies to all his other young and even adult believers, especially those whose faith is still tender and whose morals yet remain weak. Not only the little children, but also these believers are subject to the malediction of scandal caused by supposedly old and mature Christian faithful. And see how um, Ovi Cruz ties that in, you know, about those still um, tender and not mature in their faith um, and remain weak. And, you know, I, you know, you think of, too, all the Catholics that have left the church because of the, um, because of the scandals, you know, and I brought up that my own son said to me, Mom, I don't know who to trust. I don't know who I can trust anymore, and I have two boys, and I just, you know, I just don't need that. Well, um, you know, when you're, when, you're, when you're so tender and beginning in your faith and growing your relationship with God, it's a very, you know, um, very, very vulnerable time. And for these kind of things, these most atrocious things, parents who love their children, who are raising their children, and, you know, they see the despicable be happening, um, it's no wonder that they left the church. And um, we are calling you back to come back because there's so much good in the church and uh, so much to learn about this beautiful faith. All right, so then he goes on to say, those who believe in Christ can thus be classified into three basic categories as far as the wicked effects of scandal are concerned. One, those whose Christian faith is not only well and alive, but also fervent and strong, and wherefore know what scandals happen in the church, know, excuse me, know that scandals happen in the church, yet keep their Christian beliefs safe and sound. Two, 
those whose faith is shaken and probably also lessened when they become conscious conscious of a scan uh, excuse me a conscious of a scandal in the church three those who basically lose their faith and often even become ashamed of it to the extent that they simply no longer believe in the church and thus enlist themselves as members into other protestants other protestant protestant secret sects or certain creeds that defy even but elementary reason and logic c the image of a big millstone tied around one's neck by itself already depicts a mortal picture not only of a decisive but also a coarse projected action against some guilty someone guilty of a scandal when someone is thus sentenced, sentenced, it immediately conveys not merely his heinous crime, but also amply serves as a stern warning to all those who might be tempted to do the same. By itself, a man with nothing less than a millstone that is, is big and that should be specifically tied around his neck, this could be anything but a pleasant sight, projective of something disastrous and horrible. In other words, a big, heavy millstone tied around the delicate neck of anyone immediately brings to mind a deplorable, then a foreboding at, after. D. No wonder, then, that the above already gruesome reality goes to its somehow expected glory, gory ending. The individual considered should be categorically drowned in the deep sea. It is not enough that he simply be thrown, be thrown away, but actually drowned, and not merely thrown into the sea, but into a deep one. It is not hard to conclude that the scandalous fellow is decisively condemned to an ignominious death. And within the sphere of the, of the here and now ground realities death is the summit of all temporal punishments and for christ himself known for his admirable virtues of kindness and forgiveness but also for the imperatives of truth and justice the heinous sin of crime of scandal thus deserves a wretched death you know and that definitely shows us truth um you know jesus jesus didn't play around with uh harming uh, a little one innocent people you know young and immature um, all right the scriptural phrase turn away from no less than jesus himself due to scandal has any or all of the following connotations one to turn away from god and thereby side with the evil spirit two to reject the teaching of christ and consequently subscribe to the beaconing the beckoning of the devil Three, to drown the consistent and clear voice of conscience and instead entertain and covet and salivate at the baiting of Satan. Four, to exchange the precious gifts of the spiritual world with the passing pleasures of the flesh. Five, to despise the treasure of eternal salvation with the rubbish of timeless condemnation. F, the cut, off, the cut it off and throw it away. Injunction of either the hand or the foot as the cause of a scandal may be cruel or even brutal. So too does the plucking of the eye of the same origin of the scandal. 
sound even more atrocious and ruthless. All these admonition, admonitions not only demonstrate but effectively emphasize the intrinsic immorality of scandal as well as the inherent evil disposition of the perpetrator of scandal. The victims of which are not only the subject, the subject object thereof, but also others made cognizant of the scandal itself, but especially so the scoundrel guilty of the scandal and therefore condemned not only here, but also hereafter. Thrown into the fire or thrown into the fire of hell. Such is the crowning ignominy, ignominy of the one guilty of scandal. Such admonition and admonition and condemnation come from no less than the Lord Jesus himself, the second person of the most blessed Trinity, who precisely became man, was crucified, died, and rose from the dead for the ultimate eternal salvation of all. Yet there are certain individuals whom, he specifically excluded from his own precious and priceless incarnation, crucifixion, and resurrection. These all those who dare engage and cause scandal among people in general, but among the people of God in particular, who have the special predilection of Jesus, the Lord and the Savior. And he writes a conclusion. There are definitely more than a hundred and one serious and fatal sins against God, against his own people and or against other people with different creeds or belief. The truth, however, stands clear and firm that the sin of scandal of all its manifestations and classifications is the top of all vicious and odious human deeds. The word human is deliberately placed in quotation marks whereas scandal that makes children, the youth, and adults turn away from Christ must be brought about by someone precisely with a good amount of inhuman traits. No, they are not animals, but neither can they be altogether considered as truly human. B. But when scandals are in fact perpetrated by some members of the clergy, such as molesting children and or corrupting young people, these hideous phenomena cannot but acquire and merit reserved censure, special reproach, or distinct enunciation. The members of the clergy are supposed to represent Christ himself. They are meant to undertake the ordained ministry of Christian teaching, sanctifying and serving mission committed to the responsibility of the church by Christ himself. Clerics are revered and respected, also clothed and funded by the people of God as their way of supporting the many apostolic works of the church. And all these sacred factors and admirable benefactions are wantonly depreciated and even squarely betrayed by scandals brought to life in fact by certain members of the clergy. If plain believers and unbelievers already deserve severe censure and unsparing denunciation, when they are guilty of heinous carnal scandals, how much more when such crimes are committed by priests? C. <clears throat> how on earth could such all, how on earth could such already here and now condemned scandalous members of clergy be simply one automatically ignored, deliberately hidden, 
or even formally defended by the church authorities concerned. 2. Customarily transferred to another place, merely given other assignments or simply sent to mission territories. 3. And thus be allowed to victim allowed to victimize excuse me 3 and thus be allowed to victimize other children and or young people and thereby once again probably cause other scandals to more community and other places though painful and shameful to admit any of the above downright unreasonable and justifiable unjustifiable moves reveals in the open and or all of the following episcopal liabilities 1. Ignorance not only of the penal law of the Church, but also the major teachings of Christ recorded in sacred scriptures. 2. Unacceptable weakness or particular incompetence in Church governments, especially in the matter of imposing clerical discipline. 3. Accountability for the episcopal irresponsibility to the extent of even being the indirect cause of the scandals of the members of their own clergy concerned. Let it be clearly said that these episcopal liabilities do not go unnoticed in other ecclesiastical jurisdictions in the country, if not even farther therefrom. And we're going to end there. Um, I thought that was some powerful words by um, Archbishop Oscar V. Cruz from the Philippines. Um, anyways, um, so we're going to carry on. Um, next time, we'll be going into chapter 3, and it says we have, the heading is we have been here before. So we'll start on that next time, and um, I want to thank you all for being with us. I want you, I, I ask you for your prayers. We're going to end this with the glory be. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and will be forever. Amen. God bless you all.